What a pleasure to crown Him with our songs in heaven forever. With glorified bodies and voices and souls and hearts and minds and our sins forgiven and cleansed and washed away forever. Let's turn in our Bibles to the epistle to the Romans. The capital of the Roman Empire had at least one church and maybe several in the days of the Apostle Paul. And he wrote them an epistle that begins the Pauline epistles and which is considered the inspired theology of the New Testament that we want to take word, word by word, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph and chapter by chapter and learn what is here and let the words of the Holy Spirit direct our studies and our preaching. Let me read to you the first seven verses which make up the salutation and what a salutation it is. Instead of saying, Dear John Doe, how are you? I am fine. The Apostle Paul opens up these ver- this epistle with a glorious salutation and there's more doctrine about Jesus Christ in the salutation than the rest of the book combined of the doctrine of Christ. There is more about the doctrine of salvation in the rest of the book, but the doctrine of Christ is right in verses 3 and 4, and there is almost all of the great mystery of godliness of 1 Timothy 3.16 right in verses 3 through 5. But let us read this salutation and get our minds back to where we want them from the words of the Holy Spirit by our brother Paul. Romans 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God for this wonderful epistle. Let me make a brief confession to you of an experience I've had in my life that I'm having again. And it's like a deja vu experience as they use those words to describe something happening again. And I hope that it, it might help you in thinking of how we want to read and how we want to explain and understand this epistle. There was a time in my life, or I should say, I knew a man in Christ once who had a relatively good financial position with the executive management of a decent-sized bank. And that man was, at the same time, seeking to complete his MBA... And he had to sit in MBA classes and watch men write mathematical formulas on boards that were 30 feet wide and several rows deep because those men had never worked in the real world 
And they did not know what it took to run a company. And sitting there knowing what it took to run the company and knowing the decisions that were being made every day to listen to someone make it more complicated by far than it ever was drove me to come home one night on a Kawasaki 900. Thank you, brother. And throw my books against the sofa or the wall, I can't remember which, and tell my wife, that is the end of that. I am not going to spend one more minute listening to men who don't know what they're talking about try to tell me how we ought to make decisions. And for those of you who've never taken quantitative management or quantitative methods in a financial degree, you can't appreciate fully what I'm trying to tell you. Because it doesn't take rocket science to run a business. It takes something else, and it's part of your anatomy. It takes common sense decision making and some boldness to do it. Now, what does all that have to do with the epistle to the Romans? It has to do this. If you buy a commentary, 99 times out of 100, written in the last 100 years, you would not believe what you have to wade through to try to understand the precious word of God. They are going to Greekify and explanify until the forest is so thick you can't, and, and you're examining so many trees that you don't even know what the message is. Right. And it makes me just as angry and I'm having a deja vu experience. But I'm doing it because I wanted to see what are people doing this day in the year 2009 with the epistle to the Romans. We, we have a minority position on this epistle. And our minority position is based on several fundamental assumptions. Number one, that the King James Version is the Word of God. And that makes all the difference in the world rather than reading someone's idea of what they think the Greek word was when none of them can prove what the Greek word was. There is no Greek original extant in the world. Then they try to tell you what that Greek word means when neither they were born in the Greek language, nor is that kind of Greek spoken or written today in the world. Then, they have a totally different view of salvation and justification by grace. They have a totally different view of what the Jews and the Israelites believed in this time, and the trouble they gave the Apostle Paul, and you end up wading through, I mean, I'm talking about many, many pages, and getting so little. Thank you, Lord, for an English Bible that we can read and that we can take these words and we can compare spiritual thing with spiritual. And instead of trying to compare the Greek, the Koine Greek of the New Testament with the Greek of Aristotle or Socrates or Plato or the newspapers of that day, we take the words of Scripture and compare them with the words of Scripture and we come up with understanding. He has hid these things from the wise and prudent. And he's revealed them to babes. And I'm not ashamed to be a babe. I don't want their learning. It makes me sick. I want the confidence in God's Word that I can convey to you so that you can have the same degree of confidence in God's Word rather than sitting there and trusting me about some Greekifying that neither I can prove to you nor that you can even understand to accept. You just have to accept it because it's coming from your high priest. But we have no high priest in this church except the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of us are priests. That's one of the rules of Baptists. It's the priesthood of all believers. 
You don't need a priest or a pope to get you to heaven. You can all go straight into the presence of God. And we can all go into the book of Romans and read it in our tongue and understand it by following the internal rules of Bible interpretation. Lord God, save us and have mercy upon us from the philosophy of men, from their vain deceit, and and from the tradition of the world, that we might lay hold of the simplicity that is in Christ, according to our English Bibles. We thank you for them. Look at the Christology of verses 3 and 4. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we looked at all four words last Sunday which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So we're told about his flesh part of his existence, meaning his human nature. But look at verse 4, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. There is evident example of the Holy Spirit of God being involved in the Lord Jesus Christ, of his divine nature, and of him being raised from the dead. So we have a glorious Savior, and there's more taught in verses 3 and 4 about Him than in the rest of the epistle, if you'll think about it. The rest of the epistle is soteriology. You want to know what that word means? It means the doctrine of salvation. Why would anybody ever use it? Just to keep you in the dark. When we talk about Christology, we mean the knowledge of Jesus Christ, right in those two verses about Him personally and His personal identification. The rest of the epistle is going to deal with our condemnation and sin and Jesus Christ's salvation of us from that sin and then how we are to live our lives pleasing to Him. There is so much of 1 Timothy 3.16 in these first three verses. If we add to what I've just read in verses 3 and 4, if we add verse 5, it says, "...by whom we have received grace and apostleship..." For obedience to the faith among all nations. So there's all the nations of the world mentioned. Verse 7 is going to say, your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. When we look at 1 Timothy 3.16, the great mystery of godliness that we should delight in is made up of these six things. God was manifest in the flesh. Is that in this passage? It's in verse 3, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh justified in the Spirit. Is that in this passage? Verse 4, according to the Spirit of holiness. He was declared to be the Son of God. Seen of angels? Not directly mentioned here in this passage. How about preached unto the Gentiles? Yes. Preached unto the Gentiles in all nations. Believed on in the world? Yes. Because these Roman saints had believed and received up into glory. Proven to be the Son of God is our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Brethren, verse 4 is based on verse 3. Because those two verses, 3 and 4, are explaining what the gospel of God is from verse 1. Paul said, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I was called to be an apostle. I was separated unto the gospel of God. Then we have a parenthesis which we can ignore to get what the gospel of God is. This is the gospel. The word gospel means good news or glad tidings. This is the gospel. Verse 4. Verse 3, I mean. Verse 3. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what the gospel is about. When you go to church, there should be preaching about Jesus Christ. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So we want to hear about His incarnation. 
verse 4, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. We want to hear about His resurrection and His exaltation in heaven. Then verse 5, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for His name. Because then there is a preaching of that message, that good news, to all nations since the day of Pentecost and the days following. First of all, let's review very briefly from verse 3, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We do not ever want to depart from our knowledge. And this is a great portion of the frustration you just heard me confess to you about having to read the Greekifying, philosophizing of men about Romans, the first five verses. Romans 1, 3 and 4 teach our doctrine of sonship of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they are put to pains to cloud the issue and to turn people away from seeing the simplicity of these words to try to see something there of an eternal son. We believe in the eternal God, but we do not believe in an eternal son. As Michael Servetus was being burned at the stake by John Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland in the 1500s, he said, O Jesus, thou son of the eternal God, have mercy on me. Michael Servetus was condemned by John Calvin and the Geneva City Council for two counts. One, he believed incarnate sonship like we do. Two, he hated and repudiated infant baptism. Amen. Guess where John, what John Calvin would do to you? Now, do you want to go around and tell people without an explanation that we're Calvinists? No way. Oh, Jesus, thou son of the eternal God, have mercy on me. Calvin's chaplain said, if he would have just have moved the adjective, his life could have been saved. If he would have said, oh, Jesus, thou eternal son of God, have mercy on me. But Michael Servetus, and God only knows his soul, Michael Servetus defied them in the flames. Like a Judas Maccabees would have, or a Simon Maccabees, or a Jonathan Maccabees. May the Lord bless us to be faithful and to defend the word of God. The gospel is the news, it is the information about Jesus, the Son of God. That is the simplicity of our faith. And you can call us simple. You can call us naive. Fine. Jesus is the Son of God. And without Jesus, there is no Son of God. And if you can lay hold of that, you have the doctrine. And is that simple? Can a child understand that? Amen. Jesus is the Son of God. Right. Luke chapter 1. I know I've read it before. I may not pass this way for a while, and I want you to remember these verses. Luke chapter 1. The angel Gabriel has appeared to Mary. And Mary is troubled, and he says to her in verse 30, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. So we have the first part of our sentence. Jesus is the Son of God. We have Jesus. Mary is going to conceive in her womb a male child, a son, and she's supposed to call his name Jesus. Verse 32, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. 
And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. David is his father. Because Mary was a daughter of David. Verse 33, And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Praise the Lord. That's an item for thanksgiving. Of his kingdom there shall be no end. Every kingdom in this world has come to a quick end. They thought that it would last a thousand years. The Third Reich could barely make it a decade. They thought it would last a thousand years. Where is Rome today? The Italians are the joke of Europe about their military. World War II made more jokes about the Italian military than can, you can shake a stick at. True. Where is Greece? Are you kidding me? They're aiming for being third world. Where's Egypt? Where are they? Their kingdoms all ended. As, as Solomon argues in the book of Proverbs, the crown does not endure to all generations. But I know one crown that does endure to all generations. And it is our crown king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. These verses are describing that by way of prophecy. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. Do you know what house you're part of? The house of Jacob. Go read Acts 15 if you don't understand that. Go read Romans 2. We're going to get to it. Romans 9, Galatians 6, Galatians 3. And find out that you are the true Israel of God that lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And of His kingdom there shall be no end. There is no end to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been in it for 2,000 years. And it's only getting stronger and bigger and better as it dashes the nations of the earth into smaller and smaller fragments. Verse 34, Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be? Seeing I know not a man, I'm a virgin. How can I have a son? The angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, therefore also, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Mary had a baby boy that she named Jesus that was the result of her egg and God's miraculous conception in her womb. He was and is the Son of David. He was and is the Son of God because God was His Father in a virgin's womb. Jesus is the Son of God. She called Him Jesus. The angel explains with a therefore drawing a conclusion. Because God is going to cause your conception, that is how you're going to conceive without a man. Because God's going to cause the conception, God is the child's father. That's why we have the word also there. There are two things being explained. The Holy Ghost is going to come upon you, Mary. The power of the highest is going to overshadow you, which is going to bring two things. Number one, you're asking, how can you conceive being a virgin? Well, this is how it's going to happen. Two, because it's God causing the conception, Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. And He's going to be called the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Acts 8.37 is missing from all Bible translations, all Bible versions, except the King James Version. The eunuch asked Philip, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? 
What does Acts 8.37 say? Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. The eunuch said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I wonder why that verse would be taken out of the Bible. That Jesus is the Son of God and that believing on Him is necessary for baptism. It sounds like a Calvinist has been at work again with his pen knife. In Acts 8.37, there's no explanation there with that verse missing to the question of the eunuch, what doth hinder me to be baptized? The, the answer to the question is gone. The answer is very plain. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. A little bit of belief isn't good enough. A belief requires some works to prove that it's real faith. Then you can be baptized And the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's the point I want to give to you from the third verse. Jesus is the Son of God. There is no other Son of God. The Word of God is not the Son of God. The Word of God is God. I had a five-year-old child come up to me this morning and give me a new verse. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. The Word was not the Son. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then we saw a Son. Do you understand this verse, Luke one thirty-five? Luke one thirty-five. Mary, you're a virgin, but you're going to have a son without knowing a man because the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and the power of the highest is going to overshadow you. That's, one, that's how it's going to happen. But because it happens that way, He's going to be called the Son of God because God is His Father. Jesus is called the only begotten Son of God because Jesus is the only one ever begotten this way by God. Don't let them tell you that there's more behind those words than that. Or it's very complicated and deep and sophisticated. And you need philosophy and you need to Greekify it to figure out what those words mean. This is where they're found, right here. Isaac is called Abraham's only begotten son in the Bible. Hmm, interesting. Is Isaac Abraham's only begotten son? Well, pastor, if you said it's in the Bible, then I guess he is. Did Abraham have another son that was Isaac's superior by about 13 years? What was his name? Ishmael. Then why is Isaac called Abraham's only begotten son? Because he partakes of Abraham's nature in an eternal generation that Ishmael didn't? You can't understand the pages you've got to read on this stuff. It's unbelievable. Why is Isaac called Abraham's only begotten son and Ishmael is cut out and not called that? Because he's the son of promise and because he's the only one that came by Sarah. The seed was going to come through Sarah. The promise was through Sarah. So in that respect, Isaac is the only begotten son of Abraham. And that's what the Bible says about him in Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham offered up his only begotten son. Well, there's Ishmael. He was 13 years older than Isaac. Ishmael didn't count. God had cut him out. He was a work of the flesh between Abraham and Hagar. So Isaac was truly the only begotten son of God. By what means? Because he came through Sarah by promise. Why is Jesus called the son of God? Because he had some sonship relationship from eternity? No, because he was conceived in the womb of a virgin by Almighty God. It's so simple that I don't think some of you understand the fight that we've been through in the past. 
Some of you understand the historical consequences of taking our position, that we are in a very small minority, and that men like Michael Servetus were burned at the stake, not by Catholics, but by Calvinists. Because those Calvinists are as loyal to the Catholic confessions of faith as the Catholics are. Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I know this is review, but I cannot leave these verses, especially after having taken a look in some textbooks on Romans chapter 1 and the confusion that is sown there. Jesus is the Son of God. And I hope that if I was facing death, I would go to that death by flames the same way Michael Servetus did. O Jesus, Thou Son of the Eternal God, have mercy on me. That sounds like Stephen, doesn't it? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. John chapter 1, look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. This is the only one that was begotten this way, of the Father, and it required flesh. It did not come from eternity. It came with a flesh body full of grace and truth. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. You young men in this assembly and you young women, don't ever forget what I'm telling you right now. We must pass on. We, you are going to bury us. But never let this church believe in the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is eternal God. In His divine nature, because He is the Word. But He is the Word made flesh. And without flesh, there is no Jesus. And without Jesus, there is no Son of God. There is the Word of God. But the Word of God was made flesh. He was made of a woman in the fullness of time. Galatians 4.4 And He is a man. There is a man sitting at the right hand of God in heaven at this hour, who is our Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our Savior. He is our High Priest. He is the apostle of our profession. He is the bishop of our souls. He's the cornerstone of our church. He is the head of our church. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the word of God. He created the worlds. And he grew in wisdom and stature. And we went over all that last Lord's Day. John chapter 1. So much more could be said. So much more has been said. Never let go of these things. Jesus is the Son of God. Do you want to know what faith overcomes the world? 1 John 5, 4 and 5. He that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. That is faith that overcomes the world. Do you know the only person that will ever really believe that? It tells us there. And the faith that overcomes the world is born of God. Whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And what is that faith? That Jesus is the Son of God. It's the faith expected of the Ethiopian eunuch. It's the faith declared by Peter to Jesus when Jesus said, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Or when he asked them, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember what Christ means? It's the Old Testament Messiah. Without Jesus, there is no Christ. Without Jesus, there is no Messiah. Without Jesus, there is no Son of God. Without Jesus, there is no Savior. Without Jesus, there is no High Priest. Without Jesus, there is no Mediator between God and men. Right. Well, when did all that take place? 
The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing, that little baby, shall be called the Son of God. Because God is its Father, and it's also called the Son of David, because David was its Father. Deep. So deep. It's like quantitative mathematics. Mm -hmm. To make a decision that you need to close a branch that's hemorrhaging money. Do you know what it takes to close a branch that's hemorrhaging money? Somebody with a good enough anatomy to make the decision. Right. And close the branch. Hello? Or do we need to all get MBAs? And so we come to theology, and it's no different. Amen. Fight for the simplicity of Christ. Amen. And don't let anyone take you away from it. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Verse 3 said he was made the Son of God by flesh, by his conception, by his incarnation. He became the Son of God. He was called the Son of God. He became the Son of David. He was called the Son of David. But then there was more to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it took place after His resurrection. Romans 1.4 says, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. There was another phase in our Savior's life. His first one was of humiliation. Jesus humbled Himself to the death of the cross. Prior to that, he humbled himself to the poverty of being born to two parents legally, Joseph and Mary, who could not afford the real sacrifice for his consecration. They took two turtle doves, which was a poor woman's sacrifice. There was no place for him when he was born. He humbled himself when he came into this world. But when he went out of this world, he was not humbled. He was exalted. He that descended also ascended. And so we have the fourth verse. He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. It is the resurrection that shows and proves Jesus to be the Son of God with power, with an exalted, authoritative position and with strength to overcome all His enemies. Shown that to the whole universe. When He was here on earth, He was here in a measure of weakness, in a measure of humiliation, but not after His resurrection, when He rose up into heaven and sat down at God's right hand, the Lord saying to Him, Sit here at My right hand until I make Thine enemies Thy footstool. We have the greatest King. He shall be higher than the kings of the earth. Psalm 89, verse 27. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is King of kings. He is Lord of of lords, and he's been that for 2,000 years. 3,000 years ago, he didn't exist because there was no Jesus. He existed in the eternal God because he was the Word. I hope I'm making myself clear enough that you can just wrap your arms around that and hold on to it. Amen. Jesus, we have, a, we have a man in heaven at the right hand of God. That's why it is said in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. God can't be a priest. You have to choose someone out of the people to be a priest. Hebrews chapter 5. And no man takes that honor unto himself. 
But God said in Psalm 110, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have a priest that you can go to and he will win every act of mediation for his people. And we shall all be saved with an everlasting salvation by Jesus Christ our Lord. He was made of the seed of David according to the flesh in verse 3, but he was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection in verse 4. Verse 3 tells us how he was made. Verse 4 tells us how he was declared, proven, and shown to be the Son of God. When the Jews asked Jesus, if you're the Son of God, show us a sign. Those profane blasphemers, hadn't he performed any miracles in three years? How many do you think? John said, if all that Jesus Christ had said and done were recorded in books, and this is hyperbole, do not think he meant that literally. His bathroom could have held all the books. Please, and I mean no disrespect to John or the Word of God, but please understand when you read hyperbole. Jesus had a very limited ministry. His ministry was three and a half years long. But John said if everything Jesus wrote and did was recorded in books, the world could not contain the books. That's hyperbole. The point being, he did, he did so much, but they still came to him and said, show us that you're the son of God. And he said, an evil and an adulterous generation seeketh a sign. And there is no sign going to be given to it. I am not going to call fire down from heaven to entertain your little profane minds. I will not do it. I will not do some of the things that Moses did just for you to see something. He didn't even say it because it was understood. He had already done enough miracles. He said, I'll give you the sign of Jonas. Put me in the ground for three days and three nights and I'll come forth. Now, how's that for a sign? What other man in the history of the world has said, kill me, and in 72 hours I'll come forth? That is a sign. No sign shall be given to this generation saving that of Jonas. Because Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And then come forth, declared to be the Son of God with power. They said, show us that you're the Son of God. He said, I'll give you one sign. Three days and three nights in the ground and I'll come out. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. In John chapter 2, they said, by what authority do you do these things? By what authority do I do these things? Destroy this temple and I'll build it in three days. Now, why didn't he speak plainly to them? Because they didn't deserve it. Do you know who he loved? The saints and the excellent in the earth. In whom was all his delight. And if you wanted to play games with the Lord Jesus Christ by asking him his authority, when he had just turned water into wine, he was going to play with you. And he said, destroy this temple and I'll build it in three days. They said it took Herod 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to build it in three days? Because he spoke of his body. Because that was his proof by what authority he did these things. Now do you understand the words? And declared to be the Son of God with power. Because that's where his authority was most visibly displayed. He had the power over death. We find him in Revelation chapter 1 with the keys of hell. And of death. Jesus Christ can unlock death and release himself. And Jesus Christ can unlock death and release every single one of us. And he shall use his keys. 
He shall use his keys and release every one of us, and our bodies will fly out of the grave and meet him in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at Revelation 12.10. Revelation chapter 12. We are looking at with power. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And by what power? Enablement did he, was he raised from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Revelation 12.10. The woman's man-child ascends up into heaven. There was found no further place for the devil in heaven because there isn't room in heaven for the devil and the Lord Jesus Christ. He was cast out of heaven just like the Lord Jesus said he would be in John chapter 12. If I be lifted up from the earth on the cross, if I get lifted up on the cross, then the devil's going to be cast out of heaven. Verse 9 says, The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. They no longer had access into the throne room of God like they did before this. Remember, when all the sons of God, or the angels, in Job chapter 1 and verse 6, assembled before God, Satan came among them. Satan could come among them into the presence of God. But not after Jesus Christ died and took his position at the right hand of God. How painful that was for the devil to have a man take the seat at the right hand of God and the devil be cast out into this little blue and green ball. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice crying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Remember how the devil accused Job to God? Job doesn't fear you for nothing, you know. Job fears you because you've put a hedge about him and blessed everything that he touches. You know, any man that has the touch of Midas is going to fear you and worship you. And God told Satan, fine, take away everything that he's got, but spare his life. Remember? He accused the brethren. But there's no longer accusing the brethren after 2,000 years ago, after the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the accuser of the brethren was cast out, because what can he accuse the brethren of? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Romans 8:33. It is God that justifieth. Now that devil will accuse you of things, and your melancholy spirit sometimes, or my melancholy spirit, loves to cooperate with them. And accuse ourselves of being unacceptable in the sight of God. But God has already made us accepted in the Beloved. The devil's been cast out because there's no more accusations to make against us. Lay hold of that by faith. Believe that because it's in the Word of God. Hold up the shield of faith and quench the fiery darts of the wicked, of the devil himself. Isaiah chapter 52, and said, My servant shall be shall be prudent, and shall be exalted, and extolled, and shall be very high. Isaiah 52, and verse 13, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a powerful resurrection. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, about the power that the Lord Jesus Christ has in heaven. And declared, He was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, but he was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Hebrews chapter 2, quoting from Psalm 8, 
Hebrews 2, 7, quoting from Psalm 8. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. If you read this quickly and you don't think, you might think that it's referring to us as mankind in general, that we can build zoos and that we can tame and capture all the animals and all the creatures of the world. But it's not talking about that. Because let's go read verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. If all things are put under the feet of man, this psalm is the one that says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. And because it says all, that means there's nothing that's not under the feet of man so far. But look at this last sentence in verse 8. But now we see not yet all things put under him. We don't see all things under the feet of man. Death sure isn't under our feet. We're under the feet of death. Verse 9. But we see Jesus. Ah, we see Jesus. Jesus is the explanation of Psalm 8. Jesus is the explanation of all things are under his feet. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Crowned with glory and honor. This is what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ after he rose from the dead. He was made a little lower than the angels. Then he was made higher than the angels. When he was promoted to his position at the right hand of God, all angels and all principalities and powers being made subject to him. He was declared to be the Son of God. What does it say in Psalm 2-7? Listen to the words, because we love our King James Bible. I will declare... What? Verb? I will declare the decree... The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Psalm 2-7. Quoted Hebrews 1-5. In Hebrews 1-4 and 5 it says, Which was made higher than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. What name does Jesus have that makes him more excellent than the angels? It's in the fifth verse. What are the angels not called that Jesus is called? The Son of God. Almighty God declared to the universe at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, This is my Son. Thou art my Son. This day have I begotten thee. I have raised you from the dead and put you at my own right hand. I have begotten thee as far as this phase of the exercise of your office. You are now over all principalities and powers, and I tell the universe that you are my son. Now, he had declared he was his son at his baptism. A voice spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. That voice had said the same thing in John chapter 11 and 12. But here we have a new phase in Jesus Christ's position, authority, power, and rulership. He is put at the right hand of God, all his enemies under his feet. And he is reigning there now. What name did he get that was greater than any name that an angel has? Son. When did he get that name, son? At his resurrection and ascension 
into heaven. Because the Bible, when it says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, as I taught you several Wednesdays ago. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Paul explains that in Acts 13 and verse 33. And I want you to see it, Acts 13, 33, that that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are so tempted to make that the conception or the incarnation or the birth of Jesus Christ, but it is not. It is His resurrection, and we trust Scripture, and we compare Scripture with Scripture, and so we come to the position, because we know what Hebrews 1 and 2 is talking about. It's talking about His resurrection and glorification in heaven. And so is Psalm 2. Yet have I set my King upon my holy hill of Zion. It's talking about His glorification as God's King, higher than the kings of the earth. Acts 13, Paul is preaching in Antioch of Pisidia, and he says in verse 32, We declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that He hath raised up Jesus again. God has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. When you read in Psalm 2, or you read in Hebrews 1, the words, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, it is not talking about eternal generation, it is not talking about incarnation, it is not talking about conception, it is talking about resurrection. Because it was at His resurrection when Jesus was made the Son of God in a fuller, newer phase of His existence at the right hand of God reigning over all principalities and powers, names. In that world, in our world, everywhere, Jesus is King after His resurrection. Amen. Romans 1.4 says, according to the Spirit of Holiness. What is the great mystery of godliness? God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit. Just, Jesus didn't need to be justified like you and I need to be justified. That means we need to have our sins put away and returned, you know, be guilt, guiltless before God. We need to have our guilt wiped away and the condemnation paid for so that we're guiltless before God. Jesus didn't need that. But Jesus was justified in the sense that he was proven or shown to be the son of God by the spirit of holiness. So when we read in... 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, because it was the Holy Spirit that declared and proved and showed him to be the Son of God, because he said, put me in the ground, and in three days and three nights I'll come forth. And it was the Holy Spirit of God that gave him the power to do that. The Holy Spirit of God caused the conception. The Holy Spirit of God was the moving operator in his resurrection. And declared to be the Son of God with power. We have a Savior with authority that you have never seen nor imagined. No one on earth has any authority compared to the Son of God. You know what the Son of God himself would say? Fear not them which kill the body. Fear not them which kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But fear him who after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Luke 12, 4 and 5. Now that's a whole other level of power. And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. What did the apostles have to have in order to be apostles? They had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. This is not preaching to the choir. Why would Paul write the Roman church and start off with these words which he knew and they knew? Why would Paul write Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16 and write words that he knew and Timothy knew and Timothy preached? 
because they are very fundamental to our faith and they are very important for us to love and to exalt to their rightful place. This is the Christology of the New Testament. Jesus is the Son of God by His miraculous conception. But He was shown and proven and declared to be that by being put at the right hand of God over all authority in this universe except God Himself. He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. What should, preach, what should preaching have involved in it? When Peter preached full of the Holy Ghost in the day of Pentecost, do you know what he reasoned about? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Right. And that not only was he barely raised from the dead, but he is now set at God's right hand, and he is Lord and Christ, and let all the house of Israel know it assuredly. That that Jesus that you crucified is your Lord and your Christ. And our response should be as theirs. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Look at Paul's excitement in Acts 13 when he preached that the promise God made to the fathers, he's fulfilled unto us, their children, by raising up Jesus from the dead. He's given us the sure mercies of David because he's raised up the son of David from the dead. You know what? The Jews were envious. The Jews mocked it, but the Gentiles said, can we hear you preach this again next Sunday, next Sabbath day? Can we hear you preach this again next week? And it says in Acts 13, almost the whole city came together to hear Paul the next Sabbath day. But when the Jews blasphemed and spoke against the things that he was preaching, he said, you've judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. I turn, we turn to the Gentiles. And they will believe. And it says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. There's the called. And the Romans were some of those called. And so are you. These are the wonderful things of God's word. Jesus is the first begotten of the dead. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He is the first one. He defeated death. And he sits at God's right hand and he's going to defeat death for every one of us. He's abolished death as far as of having any penal claim against us. All we use death for now for the saints of God is to get rid of these bodies because we need new ones. You can't get a new plant unless you put a seed in the ground and let it dissolve. And we put these bodies in the ground to let them dissolve to get a glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15 describes that at length. There was so much power in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that many of the dead saints came out of, the, came out of their tombs after the resurrection and walked into Jerusalem and visited with many of the saints. Can you imagine such an event? When Jesus rose from the dead, there was so much power put forth by the spirit of holiness that it opened up a whole lot of other graves and those dead saints came into Jerusalem and showed themselves alive. There's more. Do you know how much power there was in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Ephesians 1 says that Paul prayed for the Ephesian saints that they would know how much power was put forth to raise the Lord Jesus Christ because it's the same power that's necessary for us to believe the gospel. God quickened the Lord Jesus Christ and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Ephesians 1. God has quickened us and set us at his own right hand in heavenly places. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead raised us from spiritual death to believe the gospel. If it hadn't been for that, we wouldn't yet believe. But thanks be to God, he has not only resurrected Jesus Christ, 
He's resurrected us, and he has sent preachers to the Gentiles, and it's been believed down in the world because we have been ordained to eternal life by the great grace of God. And we should love the Lord Jesus Christ more than anyone you can ever meet. The ten greatest persons, the ten persons you love the most, add them all up together, they're, they're, they're filth in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the fairest of 10,000. This is the Son of God. This is Paul's salutation. I have been separated by God to preach the gospel, and I can't wait to get to Rome to preach to you saints also, because I want to encourage you that we can be mutually comforted together by the faith of you and me about the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful words that are coming in his introduction. This is Romans chapter 1. Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, but declared to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead of the Lord Jesus Christ is not some minor point. We know it. We know it. We've heard it. We can memorize verses about it. But that resurrection declared him to be the Son of God to the universe and put him at God's right hand where we ought to live resurrected lives in obedience to him and we ought to own him as Lord. And as we sang just before the sermon began, we ought to crown him Lord of all. And that means every part of our lives should be crowned. The Lord Jesus Christ should be crowned over every part of our lives. He is the Son of God. Thank you, Lord, for the simplicity of your word. Jesus is the Son of God. Made so, declared so, and shall be so forever and ever. Our Savior, he'll not lose a single one of us. May Jesus Christ be praised.